0: Welcome to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. This program is made possible through a partnership with the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Marjorie Rendell.
1: Welcome to another podcast in the series of Judges on Judging presented by the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. I'm Judge Marjorie Rendell, the chairperson of the Rendell Center. And this is our fourth podcast in the series. And I'm pleased today to have as our guest Judge Kent Jordan, who is one of my colleagues on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Kent graduated from Brigham Young University and then Georgetown Law Center. He was a clerk to Judge Lasham in the District of Delaware, was an assistant U.S. Attorney there. And then in 2002, George W. Bush brilliantly nominated him to serve on the district court, the trial court in Delaware, and again in 2006, another brilliant move, uh, nominated him to be on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals where he and I both sit, and Judge Jordan and I are pretty well known on the court for having differing views on things, and when we agree, everyone else throws up their hands and say, well, if Kent and Midge can agree, it must be right. Welcome, (laughs) Kent.
0: Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Midge. I'm glad to have the opportunity.
1: Good. Well, we're going to talk about a very topical topic today. Um, There's a lot of focus today on police conduct. And I think people are wondering about the responsibility of police officers to be accountable for their conduct and wondering about the remedies and actions that can be brought if they run afoul of the law. Now, of course, we know they could be prosecuted, and we've seen that recently prosecutions by federal prosecutors against police officers for criminal activity. But on the other hand, there are civil remedies available to someone, to individuals, whose constitutional rights have been violated. And usually this falls under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, where the question is the use of reasonable force or excessive force so today we're going to explore these two parallel tracks, if you will, the criminal track and the civil track. Kent, what what's the difference between the prosecutors bringing a criminal action and an individual who might want to file a, a civil action?
0: Well, the criminal law is a, uh, a representation of the will of the people generally, as uh, stated through the legislature or by earlier days the common law that had developed, and it, that's why criminal cases are brought either uh, by the state and local prosecutors will bring cases against police officers from time to time for excessive force. And also those cases can be brought in the name of the federal government. And when that happens, the official prosecutorial arm of the government, whatever branch of government that might be uh, a a state, a local or a federal uh, prosecutor's office, they, they bring these charges and the victim, the individual victim of the alleged police uh, brutality or excessive force is a witness but is not technically a party to the case. In a civil case, that victim is bringing the case in his or her own name and suing those people individually and perhaps the locality in the police department that uh, employed them. So there's, there's that basic breakdown, the one, the criminal cases brought not to obtain money damages, but to bring retribution in the form of uh, probably incarceration and perhaps fines. The civil case is brought to bring a measure of justice through compensatory money damages and sometimes punitive damages. That's the essential difference.
1: Okay, and there's different, this may be a little bit off track, but there's different standards of proof. In other words, the criminal cases, you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a pretty hefty burden. Civil cases, we call it a preponderance of the evidence, which is slightly less. So sometimes you'll see a case where the criminal case didn't succeed, but the individual then goes and tries to get civil damages under a lesser burden, if you will. Now, in in the past, it's proven difficult to get criminal convictions. Very often, there's a public outcry when a police officer is, is not convicted uh, and the public just can't understand why this, this might have happened. But, but why might it be that it's, that it's difficult, if you will, to get criminal convictions for police conduct?
0: Well, you just put your finger on maybe the most important factor, and that is the burden of proof in a criminal case. It's, it's very high, and it's meant to be high, because you don't want to deprive people of liberty unless the prosecutor uh, has been able to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt, not all doubt, but a reasonable doubt that uh, that the crime was actually committed. And then there are things that the public just frankly doesn't know about. We uh, Most trials are not televised, and if they were, most people wouldn't watch them. And so they pick up a bit of news here and there about what the evidence was. But the jury, those citizens who are impaneled, they sit through days and sometimes weeks of testimony and documentary evidence that uh, then they sift and weigh and consider before they reach a decision. So it's a a little uh, distressing sometimes to see public outcry about a verdict when there is very often uh, not a commensurate level of knowledge or understanding of what the evidence is that the jury was Mm. actually working with.
1: And I think there's another aspect here that when it's a crime, the statute that sets forth the crime will have the kind of the the, the intent element or the, the, we call it mens rea, which means what has to be in the mind of that person so that the police is not going to be convicted unless there either was an intent or whether it was grossly reckless. And sometimes, you know, there'll be an explanation. Let's say there's a video that shows X, but the policeman gets on the stand and says, i was in fear for my life i thought he had a weapon there was a bulge in his pocket i know this person i've run across him before he has a criminal history i suspect you know criminal activity on his behalf so the, as you said the jury hears these bits of evidence and the question is reasonable unreasonable it's kind of interesting actually that the founding fathers put the concept of unreasonable in in the 4th amendment and it's still the concept that that animates the trials these days. Was it reasonable? And I think very often these juries put themselves in the position of the police officer and say, you know, there, but for the grace of God, if I was in that situation with this person. So I think there's a lot, as you said, that goes on during the trial that we don't get in the sound bites and and that isn't necessarily shown or appreciated in a video. Um, Now, of course, there are some recent cases where we see videos and public opinion has gone the other way but of course as we say it is the evidence uh, and some of these cases will come to trial and there'll be the opportunity for the officers to say what was going through their mind and it will be up to the jury to figure out whether it was reasonable or excessive and that's usually the the difference it was reasonable or was it excessive in light of all the facts,
0: you're right. There's there's uh, there's controversy there, and 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 the public on the in the two current cases that seem to have the highest profile, and there's been more than two, but the two that seem to have the highest profile are the prosecution of Derek Chauvin coming out of the death of George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis, and the case of uh, Mr. Brooks, Rayshawn Brooks, and uh, the police officer there. Uh, those two cases had video. In, in one instance, it was video produced by a lot of people standing around Derek Chauvin and his colleagues Allen, you know, you ought to get off him. And in the uh, case of uh, Ms., uh, Officer Rolf, uh, uh, and Mr. Brooks's uh, death, there w- w- were body cam, police body cam footage. Okay. And those things have been played on television uh, multiple times. And I think... You know, that's, those are the instances where the public really feels like, and not unreasonably, feels like we're watching, we saw it, we saw what happened. We want right. we, And uh, people start to form their own opinions about what is and isn't reasonable. But you're right, at, at bottom, the question is, was this an unreasonable seizure of the person, as the Fourth mm-hmm. Amendment would put it? And mm-hmm. uh, that's, where the, that's where the fights
1: are. Exactly. So let's talk about the civil actions. What what civil action could be brought against an officer uh, such as Chauvin or someone else? And for George Floyd, it would be the estate, if you will, would would bring a civil action saying this was a wrongful matter. And we hear the terms a nineteen eighty three action uh, or a Bivens action. These are the the names, the kind of the catchwords for the type of action that would be brought in a federal or state court. Um, so tell us a little bit about what these actions are all about.
0: Well, you know, the the 1983, so-called 1983 suits, Those that's named for a federal uh, statute. Uh, in Title 42 of the U.S. Code, Section 1983 is the place where a post-Civil War statute is codified now. It's kind of ironic that you know, um, some people have Ulysses as Grant in their crosshairs as being somebody... Be canceled and whose statue should be uh, pulled down. He was the president uh, in 1871 when this very, very important Civil Rights Act was uh, first enacted mm-hmm. and did a tremendous amount to see that uh, resistance in the post bellum South was put down and that federal law and constitutional rights for African Americans were being. Uh, I- Vindicated, and right. the,
1: the whole idea was that the freed slaves could go to court to enforce their newly won constitutional rights. That's the mm-hmm. whole basis for 1983. Right,
0: interesting. That reaches back there, and he was a champion of it, and sent troops down to make sure that this was enforced. And now uh, it it speaks still to this day of how. Any person who under color of uh, state law is how it's typically shortened or foreshortened uh, when people are talking about this statute. Any person who under color of state law deprives another person of the rights or privileges or immunities secured by the Constitution of the United States is, can be liable and that's Mm -hmm. the basis for the 1983 suit. If somebody deprives you of your civil rights under color of state law, which means, you know, some government official at some level does something to violate your constitutional rights, you can take them to federal court.
1: And in fact, it says, shall be liable, which when we get to principles of immunity, we'll talk about in a minute, it's kind of interesting. It says, shall be liable, no exceptions, shall be. So it's very interesting, the, the origins. So that's the 1983 action, and that's federal statute. So you'd bring that suit in federal court. An individual against the person or persons who are affiliated with a government entity, could be police or other government actors, has violated their constitutional rights. So what what is this Bivens action that we hear about?
0: Now, that is a judge-made law, and that reaches back to 1971. So we're talking about almost 50 years now. there's been a period of time. Uh, it's kind of redolent of what we're in right now, where there was a, a great deal of civil unrest in the in the mid to late 60s, and there had been, I think, uh, a worry or a concern that maybe law enforcement then was being uh, too rough on uh, people. And uh, the case Bivens uh, versus six unknown named agents to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics became a very significant case because it said that uh, even though there's no statutory basis for this, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States said that implied in the Constitution's guarantees against unreasonable searches and seizures, for example, there is a a right to bring federal law enforcement agencies into court and sue them for damages. So
1: So why did we need Bivens if we have 1983?
0: Because 1983 is directed at State law. It says anybody acting under color of state law. Uh-huh. So okay. here we've got federal agents. In, the, in Bivens, it was the FBI, but it could be any federal law enforcement agent. Okay. And it's, uh, Bivens, you know, sort of represented a, a high watermark in how much the Supreme Court was willing to do to say, well, it may not be written in the Constitution, but it's in there. It's implied in there that, you know, if you're going to have these rights, you should be able to vindicate them in court, and uh, therefore there's a private right of action. And that, unlike Section 1983, where any constitutional right that you have that's violated, you can use as a basis for a lawsuit against the state official, uh, Bivens that implied right of action has only been extended to the Fourth Amendment context where we're we're talking right now about unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, It's been implied uh, in the the context of uh, the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, uh, the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment.
1: Now, when you say it's implied, Mm -hmm. we imply it, and you need to imply it because there's no statute. So the the court has found it. Isn't that kind of unusual that the courts are saying, ah, you know what? There isn't any statute that provides this cause of action, but we're going to make one up. We're going to allow it. Isn't that kind of unusual and uh, yeah. maybe violates the separation of powers.
0: It is indeed unusual, and, <laughs> and is coming to a fair amount of criticism for exactly that. And the Supreme Court has been careful not to uh, uh, do anything to uh, expand it in the last 40 years. I mean, I think the last time uh they said uh, there was an implied right of action was in a, a 1980 case that had to do with uh prison circumstances and so uh they they um yeah they've been pretty clear especially of late in saying we're not we haven't gone past there and hey you lower courts you don't go past where we've gone either
1: yeah yeah it's kind of interesting a case that you and i both had recently it had been decided to allow a Bivens action. And then the Supreme Court came down with a ruling you know, only a couple of years ago that said, wait a minute, we want judicial restraint here. We're just not going to do that. So it came back to us and we kind of scratched our heads and said, you know, under this new test where we're not supposed to do this, we're not going to do this. We're not going to apply this right of action. It's amazing that this sea change in the law as dictated by the Supreme Court, came down recently and it's going to be very unusual, I think, to find courts recognizing you know, these rights of action. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the reasoning of the court in that opinion was about the separation of powers and also the the implications when you create this cause of action against government officials. You know, There's a lot that, that goes into these cases and it can distract the officials from their normal day-to-day duties. It can bring about consequences for the system. Uh, And often they arise in the prison context where we've kind of said, you know, we're not prison administrators. We're a a bunch of judges. It really isn't up to us to say that this is the way to detain a prisoner or this is the way you act. So Mm -hmm. I think the the concept of restraint um, is, is kind of prevailing in in this day and age, which you know is probably a good thing, unless something, as you say, the excessive force aspect that has been decided, we can go there. And if there's excessive force, um, you know, there's not much that counsels against uh, allowing those suits to proceed. So let's assume we have these cases. So 1983 says shall be liable, but is there any pushback against the li- this liability or are there any principles that, that we say protect officers or government actors in, in these situations?
0: Yeah, there there are, and there are uh, the best known, the most significant uh, feature in the law is uh, what's called qualified immunity, and that's a, a doctrine, its roots are in common law, but it's uh, been applied in the context of 1983 suits and Bivens' actions to protect law enforcement officers from personal liability unless they have violated a clearly established constitutional right. That there's a in essence a two-part test in that phrase I just uttered. The plaintiff in a lawsuit invoking section 1983 or Bivens has to show that there was a violation of a constitutional right. And usually, but not always, usually we're talking in the excessive force context, but it comes up in other contexts too. And then the officer has to make the argument that that right was not clearly established. So uh, the qualified immunity defense is not something that uh, the plaintiff pleads in the first instance. It's something that the police officer comes forward with in that civil lawsuit and says, well, wait a second. Uh, And sometimes they attack it on both fronts. They'll say, there was no constitutional right actually violated here because I didn't exercise excessive force. The force I exercised was perfectly reasonable under the circumstances. And besides that, even if somebody thought what I did was excessive, it wasn't clearly established in the law that what right. I did was outside the bounds.
1: So it's almost like the police had to have been put on notice that, that what they were doing violated the law. For instance, in the, in the recent case, the Floyd case, There is Chauvin, who is the actor. And then also, uh, perhaps exposed to civil liability, might be other officers who witnessed it. Mm. And the question would be, did they have the obligation to intervene, to which they say, or could allege, well, wait a minute. There's There's no case that says that failure to intervene is a constitutional violation these are the kinds of things and it can rise and fall based upon the facts of the length of what, where they were, whether they could see what was going on. I mean, it's very fact intensive as to whether they should know. And more and more the courts are saying, well, is it, is this situation that happened exactly what the case law has said is the, you know, the failure to intervene or the violation. It, it gets very legalistic, and very complicated,
0: right? And that's that's a, a consequence of Supreme Court precedent, which has repeatedly told the lower courts, you cannot make a judgment about qualified immunity at too high a level of generality, because you know at, at a certain level of abstraction, uh, you could say that everything is clearly established. You know, uh, the the ultimate level of abstraction is you can't be unreasonable in your force. Well, and you were unreasonable, therefore you're liable. No, the Supreme Court says you got to bring it down and get fact-specific and look at exactly what happened in these circumstances, and then you can make a judgment about whether something right. was clearly established uh, right. or not.
1: And really, it's whether a reasonable officer in that situation would have known that what he was doing violates the Constitution. Right. And that's that is really a drill down. A reasonable officer, not subjective belief, reasonable officer in this situation. You look at, you know, the time of day, what was going on, what other what other cases had held. Well, this may be yet further iteration. So it, it, it does get very complicated. And, and recently, there has been an outcry against this whole idea of qualified immunity. And it's interesting, I was reading uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal in June that said that there is an extraordinary coalition of organizations on the left, right, and middle. One federal judge called it perhaps the most diverse amicus ever established that has called on the Supreme Court to revisit this issue of qualified immunity. Uh, and the, yeah. the, on the Supreme Court, the, the proponents might be said to be two of the most diverse uh, Clarence Thomas and Justice Sotomayor, who you might think are opposite ends of the spectrum, but yep. they both have said, listen, this is preventing people from pursuing rights against police when 1983 says they shall be liable. And I think there's a move afoot in Congress uh, yep. also to do something about qualified immunity.
0: There is, and that, and uh, your listeners should be aware that there's, a, there's a, an argument and a quite powerful one in favor of qualified immunity you can say that it's it's become too much of a shield and people are in fact making that argument although some of the i understand some of the proposals in congress are to remove it entirely but there's a reason that it was put in place there's a reason it developed in the common law if you make the police have a monopoly right law enforcement has a monopoly in a civil society on the exercise of force against other people. And so if you say to those people, look, we want you to use force when you need to, to make sure that peace and order are maintained in our society. And then at the same time you say, and if anybody disagrees with how you exercise your judgment in that regard, you're going to have to open your wallet and lose your job and your livelihood and maybe all your assets. Well, you're not going to have many people eager to step up and take that job. So there's a reason why qualified immunity exists. Now yeah. I think in reality, you know, in most cases, maybe all, virtually all cases, the individual police officer subject to a 1983 suit or Bivens action is is not going to be opening his or her wallet. Uh, that's going to get paid for in the case of state and local officials uh, by the municipality, for example, and that's will be
1: indemnification, what we right. call indemnity. Yeah,
0: right, and that's why you see organizations like uh, the National uh, Conference of State Legislators and others coming out and saying this is a big mistake to try to pull back on qualified immunity because you won't be bankrupting individual police officers; you will be bankrupting the city you will be bankrupting the municipality, and we won't be able to offer essential services if you do this. So uh, it's not an uncomplicated issue.
1: I think you're right. I think there is a problem if you take it away. Um, police really want to expose them. It's not that they're definitely going to be found liable, but the cases are going to be brought. And in some instances, the fact that there's qualified immunity probably prevents the, the case that is frivolous. So it, it does offer protection. Um, so, but these, these principles develop over time, and I think qualified immunity really came to the fore under the Warren Court when they were, I guess, finding a lot of constitutional violations and then decided they would do something to, to offer some protection.
0: That's true, but there was a significant development later i mean that this the pearson versus ray is the warren court decision that put qualified immunity in play in 1983 cases in a significant way but there there was a case from 1982 called harlow versus fitzgerald so that's that's uh you know well past the warren court's time But that that case uh was actually it was a Bivens case, but it's had resonance in the 1983 space in a big way. It's, it made qualified immunity subject to an objective standard of rev- instead of a subjective standard. That is, when you're deciding whether something was reasonably done or not. You don't ask whether this cop knew he was doing something bad. You ask, look, uh, just speaking objectively, taking that guy's thinking and what he may have said out of the picture, would a reasonable person just stick stuck in that circumstance know that this was a constitutional right that was uh, uh, well-established? Yeah. So that's that was a pretty big step, and that's gotten controversial too.
1: Well, this has been interesting, and I, I hope we have uh, achieved our goal of educating the public. Uh, we like to think that, that teachers are listening in and maybe can use some of this knowledge to educate the next generation of citizens, which is one of our missions at the Rendell Center. And I have to thank Kent, not only for being on this podcast, but whenever I say I need somebody for the Rendell Center to do something, Kent raises his hand and is always willing to do it. And maybe that's because he has a, a bunch of kids and 13, almost 13 grandchildren, because <laughs> yeah. he knows we need to educate them.
0: And a soft spot in my heart for Judge Rendell. Always happy oh. to have the chance to work with you. Thanks a lot. Thank
1: you so much, Kent. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Judges on Judging, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. Information about and resources from the Rendell Center are available online at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.